This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Welcome to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us as Deb talks with her guests, experts in their fields, as they share real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. Good morning, good morning. I am Deb Creer, and I am passionate about giving professionals the tools that they need to make themselves and their businesses as successful as possible. And today, we're going to be talking about several things with one person, you know, obviously business, but we're also going to be touching on personal. Um, And because, of course, if we are not healthy, if we are not at our best, doesn't matter what we're doing with our business, it's not going to be successful. So today we're going to talk about chronic pain, which is kind of one of those scary things, but it is something that affects so many people and it affects not only people, but your businesses. You know, if you have employees, you know, you might have employees who have issues and, and things like that. So please join me in welcoming Brendan Lundberg to our program today. Welcome, Brendan. Hi, Deb. Thank you. Honored to be here. Great. Well, let me tell people just a little bit about you, and then we will jump into this. Great. So, P. Brendan Lundberg, a previous chronic pain sufferer, co-founded Radiant Pain Relief Centers, along with David Farley, MD, a Harvard-MIT-trained physician, with a vision to build the safest, most consistently effective, and appealing solution to the epidemic of chronic pain. Combining a mission to change the way chronic pain is understood, treated with deep experience in healthcare management, marketing, business development, and sales, Brendan opened Radiant Pain Relief Centers in Portland, Oregon in February of 2014. Following the success of the first center, they are laying out a plan for expansion to open new centers in new markets nationally and internationally to help millions find relief without drugs, needles, surgery, or side effects. So again, Brendan, welcome. Thank you. I am really honored to be here. Well, let's go back to kind of the start, you know, and, and I mentioned in your bio that you're a, a previously a chronic pain sufferer. Mm-hmm. And I know from reading your book that you have an, um, an interest and a background in medical kind of technology. So tell us, you know, how did you really find this as being your passion in life? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think like many entrepreneurs, my, um, my motivation was financial. My motivation was a higher level of autonomy and control in my life and my life schedule. Although I think I very much learned that the adage of an entrepreneur can pick any 80 hours a week that they want to work uh, to be very true. Eight uh, hours a day. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, but the why has, has morphed um, so much in the years that we've been doing this to see people get their lives reclaimed mm-hmm. um, who, you know, a high percentage of our clients have thought about suicide because they're just still trapped in bodies that are betraying them and no professional has been able to help them solve that problem. And, you know, to see people get their lives back in a matter of uh, days and weeks um, and not just mask the pain, but begin a catalyst of transformation and change is a life, life-changing thing to witness and to be a part of. And, um, you know, when people ask what I do, I don't talk about, you know, what we do. I say I own a business that's changing the way that chronic pain is understood and how it's treated. And that be- that begins a conversation with that individual, typically, because people say, well, what does that mean? You're changing the way that chronic pain is mm-hmm. understood and treated. And it, it, as I mentioned before we began, I mean, pain is both very literal and very metaphoric. And so it's just a fascinating subject matter for me to, uh, you know, to talk about. And 
honored to be here today and to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, let's talk about the business aspects to start with. And yeah. I was fascinated by the fact that you have, you know, if, well, we'll go back a little bit. Chronic pain really is, as you mentioned, something that is not really treated. You know, it's not it's not a disease. Um, and so it doesn't get the funding of the month, the telethon, you know, all of those right. various things. And so it's it's not an afterthought. Well, sometimes maybe it is for doctors to actually treat it. So when you decided that this was going to be your business, yep. I'm guessing you got a lot of pushback from people saying, that's never going to work. Why would you want to do that? Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And, uh, you know, part of the evolution of our business was a direct result of the fact that I spent over two years of my time and my own money and effort to try to sell the technology that's central to our business to physicians and found that most doctors are trained in pain science literally from the 1960s. They get very little education Mm -hmm. in medical school or whatever professional course of study they went through. Uh, What they get is often very antiquated and they get very little continuing medical education because there just isn't really a market for it. And what they get is often funded by the drug companies. So it's a little bit obviously biased to their products and their perspective. And so there's a lag in understanding. And, and in many cases, there's an economic disincentive for people to change what they are doing and what they've been doing, even if they readily admit that it's an inadequate approach. Um, and so, you know, industry doesn't want to disrupt itself. And so I saw an opportunity to kind of craft a business solution around technology that kind of solved those problems. And rather than trying to, you know, cram an existing product into an existing world or to cram a new product into, into an existing world to create a new world to better serve that product and to create better outcomes. And the, the analog I like to talk about is Starbucks. You think about Starbucks and how they fundamentally changed society, the way most of us value coffee and the role that it plays in our lives. They didn't do that by selling a better coffee product to the local mom and pop diner. They did it by creating a store, Mm -hmm. which created an experience, which created a brand, which created replication, the ability to scale and become what they've become. So that's what we're aiming to do and how we're approaching pain. And you've written a book um, and it's called Radiant Relief, A Case for a Better Solution to Chronic Pain. And, you know, one of the things as I was reading it was, you know, you, you compared it to Starbucks. I was thinking Amazon. You know, where it really was something that was totally different. Uber would be another great thing um, where, you know, I'm sure many people went, you want to do what? Um, you know, I'm, I've been seeing commercials now for a company that is um, the, the rental car world of Airbnb. You know, you're renting someone's yep. private car. Yep. And, you know, and, and these, these businesses that are outside of the normal realm really do seem to be, you know, we seem to see them more and more than we have in in the past. And, you know, I I just find that very interesting that, you know, people are coming up with this stuff and I'm sure they've come up with it in the past and people went, don't do that. And they went, okay, (laughs) now they're taking chances and doing it. Yeah. Yeah. um, You know, I I realized pretty early on that this therapy that we work with uh, was effective and it was really a matter of how it was being commercialized. And Mm -hmm. so uh, having had um, a number of different experiences throughout my career, all of which have been healthcare related business experience and specifically having spent almost a decade in the hearing aid industry and realizing that hearing aids are are not covered by insurance. They're not inexpensive. And I thought, well, heck, if people are spending six, seven, eight thousand dollars for a set of hearing aids to have a better quality of life, they're certainly willing to spend money out of pocket to get out of pain mm-hmm. if this therapy really works and it's presented to them the right way. So I began to think of this not in terms of how do I sell this and convince a doctor, 
but how do I help reach it to more consumers, the people who are suffering? And that began the, the evolution of the business thinking um, that's led us you know, uh, to where we are today, which is confidence in a model of building clinics direct to the consumer, as well as uh, in the coming year or a couple of years, an at-home version of the technology, which will be like the Peloton of pain. Mm-hmm. So an at-home therapy that is not just about a device, but it's about a device and, and, and a tele, you know, telemedicine or um, kind of app-driven interface to create an experience and to create better use outcomes and uh, compliance to the use. And so, you know, we have a pretty clear vision of how we're going to change the way that pain is understood and treated, but it starts first with modern pain science and better understanding about what pain is. Right. Now, you know, one of the things that, that I was fascinated with on this is the fact that because this is so non-traditional, so disruptive, yep. it's not like you can go to somebody and say, give me money. I want to finance this, yes. yeah. And you know, because they're going to go, well, you, you're, you're not going to make money. You know, why would I want to give you money when there's clearly, you know, I'm just going to be losing my investment. So you had to take kind of the non-traditional type of of approaches on raising money. So talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, as probably many of the listeners can appreciate, I mean, you know, startup companies, um, you know, many of the successes that we hear about raise a lot of money in, B- in VC funding, right? Mm-hmm. And um, institutional investors like VCs or private equity, they invest typically upon checkbox criteria. It has to meet certain criteria within their investment kind of thesis or, you know, their business strategy or whatever it might be. And they know we're going to take a gamble on X number of businesses knowing that X number will fail and one of these will be an, a unicorn and it'll make money and cover the losses on the others. Um, but because of our business, because at the onset, we didn't own the technology, we just had a licensing arrangement for the technology, we didn't own the IP. And because we're building a brick and mortar business, the cost structure on the front side of building that, and it's then big. having to, it's big, and then having to hire and train and retain staff in order for that to, to, to succeed and then to scale is a threat, you know, is without, I guess it's outside of the realm of what most VC funds want. They want software that scales without people. Mm -hmm. They want kind of control of the IP so that they can grow an operating business and sell the operating business and sell the IP maybe together or maybe separately. And because of that, while everybody's been very complimentary to the vision and, you know, pleased with the outcomes that we're already producing, it just doesn't meet the checkbox criteria for most institutional investors. So we've been left raising money from angels uh, you know, and, and the angel investor, obviously, they want to see their money be productive. They want to see it return back to them. But they may also be investing from more of a heart space or right. a head space based it's upon part their of own the experience. reason they're called angels. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, we've raised several million dollars from angels, but it comes in $25,000 at a time, you know, over time. And so it's hard to, you know, aggregate the capital in, in quick fashion to really turn the business on like you could if you took a big check from one institution. The um, So because of that, we are... Um, about to begin what's called a Regulation A-plus crowdfunded public offering. So that allows us to openly solicit and not have to take you know, the conversation only through an accredited investor. Mm-hmm. And because in the United States, 100 million people uh, supposedly are in chronic pain and throughout the world, I mean, these are numbers bigger than cancer, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease combined. This is a relevant problem to many households. And the opioid addiction, opioid dependency epidemic have made this even more urgent and even more amongst you know the social conscious, we believe that we can raise pretty significant growth capital through the crowd, if you will, and do it frankly in a way that is both less dilutive to us as a company. We're not taking you know a single investor that's rolling a big risk check to us, uh, but diffusing that risk across many many individuals. 
um, but also simultaneously building relationships with the exact people in the market that we hope to be able to serve with our therapy. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty winning proposition, I think. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and I love in the book, you talk about the fact that, you know, this is all legal, <laughs> you know, the way you're raising this money. And certainly we're not talking about, um, you know, going to, you know, one of those shady people on the corner or anything like that. But it gets tricky because it's medical. Um, you know, it's, it's not like you're just saying, hey, we're going to open this restaurant. There's all sorts of regulations and, and things like that, that, you know, and, and different hoops you have to go through because it is a medical product. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, though, we have we've worked really hard to kind of craft a business that while it's solving a medical problem is doing it in a way that is much less um, burdensome than most medical practices. We're not diagnosing, we're not right. injecting, we're not cutting people open. We're doing one therapy that's completely non-invasive. And, um, and the way that the FDA has cleared that technology for market use allows us to do it in a, a much lower cost kind of mm -hmm. delivery model um, without the same kind of hands-on physician involvement or something like that. And so, you know, we, we kind of, again, we've crafted a business structure that is kind of uh, neither here nor there. It's kind of building its own. Like Starbucks, again, is a great example. They created the third space. We're kind of doing somewhat similar in the sense of uh, delivering a pain therapy that is not, it's not allopathic. It's not Western medicine. It's not drugs. It's not injections. It's not surgery. It's also not quite the realm of the gamut of alternative care that's out there either. It's kind of in a little bit of no man's land. It is really a combination of things. Absolutely. Yeah. And we've had the ability to, again, not try to cram a technology into an existing world, but to really be able to elegantly craft the business structure to serve the needs therapeutically of the, of the therapy to drive great outcomes, and then to create a sensibility in the operations that allow us to be very affordable to the consumer, regardless of insurance reimbursement, and still yield you know, healthy profits back to the company. And you know, the cost structure that is present in most healthcare organizations is distorted. It's very high. The economics really in, in all of healthcare, in, at least in the United States, are kind of messed up. And so because of the fact that we aren't trying to fit into that world, we've been able to operate much more leanly and mm -hmm. again, elegantly, I think, in how we've crafted the business structure. Right. So how did you first find the technology? Because uh, back, you mentioned yeah. someone else owns it, you yeah. know, and, and so, you know, how, how did you even find this? Yeah, so in uh, 2009, 10, and 11, I was head of sales and marketing for a different medical technology. I helped bring that technology to market mm -hmm. and left the company um, to become a distributor, kind of an outside salesperson, and started looking for other technologies to add to my product mix so I wasn't you know, having only one egg in one basket. And heard about this, this device through some familial connections. And um, at the time, it was FDA cleared already, been researched at the Mayo Clinic and Johns Hopkins and promised lasting pain relief without drugs, needle surgery, or side effects. And I thought, wow, this is going to be a home run. So as I mentioned, I started putting my own time and effort and money into promoting this technology to physicians and found that because of a lag in understanding and an economic disincentive to adopt it, people weren't you know, knocking on doors to buy it. There's a high cost of the equipment, a lack of viable reimbursement, insurance reimbursement. And so you have um, you know, some obstacles that had to be overcome. And, and so started thinking again, how do we make this accessible to those who are the early adopters who really want to get out of pain? And it was the consumer that really, you know, became clear as the, the place we needed to focus. And so I started, you know, basically putting a business plan together in 2013 that was essentially predicated on the successful operating structure of a hearing aid clinic. Mm -hmm. You know, it took a P&L on the kind of the key performance indicators and made some modifications and some assumptions. And then like what an entrepreneur does, it, put it into play, put it into action and see how it does. And, you know, over the years, we've learned and made some tweaks and modifications. And now we have a model that we feel really com 
confident in and um, learn through. So we're ready to scale it up and start to grow it across mm-hmm. the country and throughout the world. Right. You know, and, and you have a business partner, you know, and, and I mentioned that's David Farley, MD, who is Harvard and MI, MIT trained. So, you know, kind, kind of one of those, those really smart people from those really good places. <laughs> yep. But, you know, it, it obviously raises the level when you have someone like that. You know, it's not like you're saying, you know, he went to one of those, you know, medical schools, one of those islands. Um, <laughs> and, and I shouldn't mock that because, you know, very good doctors come out of there. They really do, Harvard, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You hear MIT and it's like, oh, okay. You know, yep. and, and so how did you meet your business partner and get him convinced to do this? Well, I, I knew him, I knew of him in the community that I live in, a suburb of Portland called Westland. He's a full family practice medicine doctor and everything from delivering babies to end of life care. And so he's touched a lot of families in our community and I, he had a great reputation. And so I didn't know him personally but I was able to get an entree and a meeting with him. And I sat down and I said, look, here's this technology. It seems very promising. Here's a new business concept of building a clinic around this technology and why I think it could be successful. And he said to me, as did many other doctors that I talked to around this time, uh, or that I tried to sell the technology to, this sounds too good to be true. Sounds right. like snake oil. Uh-huh. Um, but instead of telling me to pound sand and to get the heck out of his office, he said, um, I have so many patients in my database who are in chronic pain. Mm-hmm. As a family medicine doctor, I've sent them here, I sent them there, they come back still in pain and they go, Dr. Farley, what do I do? So he had an open-mindedness to it that many other doctors I talked to mm-hmm. by that point hadn't. And he said, let me call the doctors at the Mayo Clinic. Let me call you know, the doctors at Johns Hopkins. Let me do some research. And he did and spent a couple weeks of his own due diligence and then called me back and said, all right, let's evaluate this. And so we partnered together to prove the concept. It was a small, literally in his basement, I helped frame in the treatment walls of the room that we had. So we had a, a small reception in a treatment room and then have grown over the, over the years from that little beginning to a much more robust business and much greater vision for what we want to do. Dr. Farley is still a great friend and co-founder of the business, but we have a new chief medical officer who is actually, you know, Farley, Dr. Farley, again, Harvard and MIT trained, you can't beat that. Uh, but he's a family medicine doctor. He's not a pain specialist, right. if you will. So, right. So we have a new chief medical officer in the last several months who is boarded in anesthesia and boarded in pain. Mm-hmm. She's a, an expert in modern pain science, which is really all about the brain, which is a fascinating <laughs> conversation that maybe we'll, we'll have here. Mm-hmm. And then we, we have, um, for the first time since the inception, we're beginning to build a team. I have a chief operating officer who's an investor and then, you know, working you know, to help me build. I have a chief financial officer. And I, these, these are important uh, functions and roles, particularly as we look to do a public offering and right. to grow the company towards an eventual real IPO and public listing. Mm-hmm. So, right. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm totally unfamiliar with crowdfunding. You know, I, I see posts about it on Facebook. That's about my extent of knowledge. Yeah. And so, you know, and it, but on your website, you know, you've got the, you've got the information and you, you know, obviously the learn more buttons, things like that. And so then people can invest. Is there a minimum that someone has to invest? Yeah. So right now we're still in our private round. So we're raising money privately. Okay. Um, and so at the, depending on when this airs and we expect as of right now, we expect SEC approval optimistically really any day to okay. begin the, the, the crowdfunding mechanism. So right now we can't take an investment. We can only take a reservation. Okay. But you know, if you're interested, you can get in a reservation and then you're in queue. And once it goes live, then you'll be slotted in queue. But um, yeah, so what we told the SEC and you know, contingent upon their approval, it would have a pretty low minimum, $500. Mm-hmm. So it's an accessible amount of um, you know, wow. entry point for most people for whom pain or the opioids might be a relevant concern or interest. And the idea is that you kind of decentralize 
the, um, you know, the investment opportunity. And um, it allows us to openly solicit. So that removes a big barrier in terms of how hard it is to reach investors. You know, when you can openly solicit, you can actually literally run ads on Facebook right. and say, we're changing the way chronic pain right. is understood and how it's treated. If this is of interest to you, click here and learn more and then drive them through an educational funnel and hopefully they invest 500 or 1,000 or 5,000 or $10,000 uh, and participate with us. And then in the aggregate, we raised 15 to 20 million that we really need to turn this thing on to a significant business and, and do it less dilutively, again, in partnership with the people that we want to have relationships mm -hmm. with anyway. Right. Now, do the investors have a say in, in things or, you know, do, do they have to invest in a certain amount before they, you know, almost like a shareholder? Yeah. Uh, you know, when, and they are shareholders. Yeah, we're selling two. it. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, you've got one or two shares. Eh. You've got 3,000 shares. Okay, now you have a, a voice in, in the company. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, just like in any business. I mean, the more that you own, the greater that voice is is heard. And we have a board of directors. So, you know, obviously, we want to build a business that's sensible to, um, you know, to the needs of the company. And, you know, I have fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders of the company, whether they own one share or, you know, a million shares or whatever it might be. And so at the end of the day, we have a responsibility as the operators and executives of the company to grow the business in a way that will hopefully give the, the shareholders the best chance to see a return and for the business to be successful and profitable. Right. You know, and it's, it, I, I love that, you know, you say one or, you know, a thousand is the same. I've had that discussion with, um, when I was in the nonprofit world with donors or, you know, with people about donors, because I would say, you know, the $10 donor really should be as important as the $10,000 donor. Now, you know, is that realistic? No, you do sure. have to spend more time on the 10,000. But I said, you never know when that $10 donor is testing the waters. Right, and, right. and they've got that big chunk of money yeah. or, you know, connections or something like that. And so I said, you know, there are some basic things that you have to do. You have to acknowledge them, thank them, you know, and, and especially when they were donating to a nonprofit, things like that. But, you know, it's, it's tricky because, yeah, they might be the, the person that's going to, to donate big later or maybe they'll set up a trust or, or whatever. So, you know, the one is just as important as the 10,000. Yeah. Yeah. And it really is. I mean, uh, again, because what we're doing is such an intimate thing, getting somebody their life back and resolving pain. It's like, you know, I, we want to make this a personal relationship for as many people as possible. And that's one of the, I think, real appeals and the values of, of robust crowdfunding like this. I mean, this is a, we had to have a financial audit. This is a, a public offering. Essentially, it's not just, you know, raise a couple thousand dollars. We're going to raise in the millions of dollars from the crowd. And so we want to do it the right way. We want to create the relationships as it stands right now in our private fundraising you know, I have the ability to build relationships very intimately with each of those investors, know them personally, have their cell phones, take their calls, mm -hmm. give them calls back, have them to my house, you know, those types of things that obviously can't translate to tens of thousands right. of investors on the open market, but hopefully we can still create a level of engagement and awareness and conversation. The other thing that's nice about this is that, um, you know, you're bearing the risk of this across many, many individuals in frankly, smaller amounts of money. So you don't have a single big investment partner that's right. going to necessarily wield their weight around. So we fortunately, if it goes according to plan, we'll never have to dilute the company to the point where we've lost control, mm -hmm. meaning that we can stay anchored in our values and our vision and our mission in a way that hopefully the investors that are investing now are seeing this as, you know, yes, a, an economic return, but also something that has a lot of social good and a lot of urgency to solve a, a pretty big problem in the market right now. Right. So you, you mentioned the fact that you're having to deal with the SEC and yep. you get permission and, and all of those. 
I've worked for companies before that were publicly traded and there are lots of bells and whistles. I mean, you know, it's, it, it is very complicated and, you know, it's as to what you can say and even wording, you know, I was uh, doing communications for them and, and even just how you worded things so that yep. you weren't, um, you were forward thinking, but you weren't, you know, you weren't divulging information you couldn't and, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's very tricky. It is very tricky. Yeah, no doubt about it. So we'll surround ourselves as, as I, you know, uh, you know, I have a great team around me now. That team will continue to evolve and, um, you know, we'll, we'll have good counsel around us hopefully at all times. And, you know, mistakes happen, but I think oh, if yeah. you own those mistakes, you will forgive you and you move forward. So well, there are people and- like our friend Elon Musk who intentionally kind of ticks off the SEC. So I don't intend to do that. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and yeah, cause you, you want approval for, for other things, um, you know, and, and clearly this is basically the only route that you can go because you need to raise so much money. Right. Um, you know, and, and I mean, you know, you mentioned angel investors, but there's only so many angel investors and so many, so much that they can invest. Right. Um, you know, you, you don't have somebody who's going to write you the $30 million check. Right. That's not an angel at that point. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's a venture capital or that's, you know, that's definitely, I mean, anybody that's going to write that level of, of check is, or even, you know, even a million dollar check is a, is a significant ask. They're going to want um, a, a big voice of not controlling right. interest at this right. stage. Of they want to, they want to sit on the board, you know, all sorts yeah. of things. Yep. And, you know, and, and that's not a negative because depending on who they are, they might be exactly who you want on the board. 100%. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. 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 You know, I think, um, you know, entrepreneurship for many people, and it certainly has been that way for me, can be a very lonely process. And mm-hmm. so, you know, you actually, uh, I have craved collaboration, craved, craved team, craved support and introductions beyond what I could myself figure mm-hmm. out, you know, for sure. So I think, I think finding the right capital partner, you're happy to give up some level of control and certainly lend them a bigger ear um, if they're the type of person that is going to help you solve the problems that will make the business be more successful for sure. Right. You know, and, and clearly we're talking about big money with you, but the same thing happens with, you know, the small one person shop, you know, even if it's not that they're investing money, you're developing mastermind groups, you're getting mentors, you know, all of those various things, because I think that is, is, yeah. And I've talked about this on the program before that being that small business owner and, and, you know, here's the really funny thing. You are probably still technically considered a small business owner, even though, you know, you're dealing with millions of dollars. Um, but you know, we're, we're, it is very isolating, um, you know, and, and so we need to surround ourselves with those people who are going to give you good advice. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. I'm a part of a couple different groups and have been in masterminds and, you know, the, su- the support and collaboration is really invaluable for people mm-hmm. for sure. Has been for me. Right. Well, you know, what other advice would you have for business people who might be thinking about doing something like this? You know, um, first of all, hats off to anybody that chooses to be an entrepreneur. Um, I, you know, I think, um, there, aside from maybe being a parent and having the responsibility and the privilege of helping to, you know, raise a human, you know, building a company is the most rewarding and challenging um, experience I think that you can have in life. And it requires a lot of you, at least it has for me, a lot, a lot more than you can even imagine. And I, to be honest, I don't think I would have had, had I known how hard it would be and how lonely it would be and how much of a grind it would be sometimes that I would have had the courage to do it. Mm-hmm. Had I not known, you know, Steve, um, Steve Jobs is famously quoted as saying something like stay, stay hungry and dumb. And I've been both of those things. And I think, you know, it's, it's 
being hungry to drive, to push and try, and also being naive to the fact of how hard it, it will be um, that allows somebody like me to do what I do. So I, you know, anybody that is an entrepreneur, I commend you, no matter what the industry is, no matter what the vision is, just go. And I think that's what really what separates entrepreneur from other people is the, the willingness to take action, to put into motion something. Because you know, many people have ideas, but they wait for the perfect time or the perfect circumstance, the perfect amount of money. And there is no such thing as the perfect anything. You just have to do it. And you know, it, whether you, you put into motion and you fail or you put into motion and you succeed, either way, it's a positive result. If you fail and you pivot and you learn, you keep getting better. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a couple of quotes I like. One is that when you think you've run out of options, remember this, you haven't. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's th- maybe Thomas Edison that said that, I don't remember for sure. And I, that's something I've really learned. I, you, know, I've, you hit a roadblock, you hit a, a cul-de-sac or a dead end, and you go, oh my gosh, what do we do? And then surprisingly enough, a new opportunity emerges out of it. And you know, another podcast that I love to listen to, How I Built This with Guy Raz from NPR, I think that's who it is, mm-hmm. um, t- that he had a, a guest on who was saying, a successful entrepreneur saying, you know, businesses don't fail, startups don't fail, their founders just quit at some right. point. Like they just get too tired of mm-hmm. the, gr- the grind of trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And so you have to come at some point, you have to kind of come to terms with the fact that this is the reality of what you're dealing with. One of my mentors and a guy whose mastermind I was in, Brendan Burchard, I learned so much from him. Uh, if your listeners are familiar with Brendan and some of his teachings, and he talks about honor the struggle and bring the joy, you, you, know, you, you have to be grateful for the fact that you've chosen a path or the universe has allowed you to have this opportunity to build something of value to the world, then you, ha- you, have to, you can't bemoan the fact that it's going to be work to do it. You have to kind of embrace that. Right. You know, and, and you definitely chose something that was outside the, the normal realm. Um, you know, and, and I think many times that is the hard part for an entrepreneur is we do think of something that is different, that is unique, and we don't have what it takes to, to go forward, you know, and, and with whatever it is, you know, maybe we don't have the money. Maybe we've got, you know, a family that's depending on us. And so, you know, taking that financial leap isn't, isn't possible. Yeah. Um, and so you really have gone into what you call a disruptive business. So define that just a little bit more as to what a disruptive business is. Well, a disruptive business in my mind is just anything that changes the status quo, mm-hmm. right? Changes how we think about something or, or how we engage with something or the way that we put, place value into something. In our case, you know, we're, we're building uh, an unproven business concept, um, although we're proving it, but, uh, you know, up to now, a relatively unproven business concept around technology that's misunderstood mm-hmm. based upon science that's not widely known, uh, it, you know, in a way that's never been done before. So you, you stack up all it's these different like things. the definition of risk. <laughs> it's, it's the <laughs> definition of risk. I, in fact, I don't know that I could have stacked it to be any more difficult. And, you know, on top of that, we're dealing in pain. And pain is the single human single greatest human common denominator. I mean, there's not a single person that's ever lived on earth that hasn't experienced pain. So we have even ourselves, our own individual experience with it. And typically that experience is one of negativity. Like we don't like pain. We want to mask it. We want to get rid of it. So give me the pill Mm -hmm. and mask it. Well, the opioid addiction epidemic, you know, the lives that have been literally millions of lives that have been destroyed or ended because of these approaches Mm -hmm. are an indication that isn't the right approach. And so you know, I feel really honored, again, to be in a space that is not just about, you know, delivering a business solution, but one that has the potential to change society by changing the way that we think about the way the way you approach chronic pain. And for most of our clients, as they get out of relief through our therapy, and they get educated about modern pain science, they become empowered, and they start to make 
bigger lifestyle changes, you know, losing weight and, you know, approaching their nutrition and their sleep from a, from a different standpoint and their exercise and their movement and their mindset and their environment. And it just becomes a catalyst for, right. for bigger, beautiful changes. And to think about the ability to do that on a bigger scale to more people across the country and throughout the world, to, we could change society. I mean, and pain is an entry point that's significant, that's huge, and that's urgent for a lot of people. Right. You know, and, and it, it is something that, you know, as, as you've said, you know, so many millions of people have, you know, have a problem with chronic pain. Um, and in many cases, it's just, you know, well, poo-pooed or, or, or poor, oh, poor thing, um, you know, and, and things like that. And, and so to be able to positively affect so many people, I mean, that's just got to be very cool. Yeah. Yeah, we, I mean, really everything that we do is different. You know, the first, first of all, it's important to understand the science of pain really has changed tremendously in the last five to 10 years, but there's a lag in understanding. Mm -hmm. The science in high level is this, we feel pain in our body, but it all actually comes from the brain. Mm -hmm. The brain via the nervous system generates this pain experience to protect us. And Mm -hmm. if you have your hand on the hot stove or you have cancer growing in your tissue or you've broken a bone, you actually want to feel the pain because it's going to get your attention. It's, it's going to trigger you to change. Signal. It's the warning. Yeah, something's wrong. We need you to make some changes so that you stay alive and you learn from this. And so pain ultimately is a protective function. Mm-hmm. But when pain becomes chronic, and you know why this happens is you know interesting and probably you know more out of the realm of this conversation. But essentially, when pain becomes chronic, meaning it's sticking around longer than is appropriate, or it's growing in intensity beyond what is appropriate to a cause, or in some cases like fibromyalgia without a clear cause. Mm-hmm essentially it's just a nuisance it's not really a protective function anymore and the brain becomes wired to expect and to perpetuate the pain phenomenon regardless of what's happening in the tissue so a better way to understand this is to think about phantom pain mm-hmm. you know in phantom pain the part of the body's been amputated it doesn't exist so if there's no fingers to fill right. anything why are they feeling pain that's an indication that it's not a tissue problem because those there's no tissue to fill mm-hmm. anything. And so really all chronic pain in some degree is like phantom pain. Mm-hmm. It's really a brain problem. And so we use technology and modalities to retrain the brain, uh, non-invasively, no drugs, no needles, no surgery, and none of the side effects and risks of those approaches. And through neuroplasticity or the brain's ability to learn, we can restore the brain and body back to a more normal perception of pain and get relief that becomes mm-hmm. significant and lasting. Right. Yeah, it's, it, we get used to being in pain. Um, you know, and, and, and I think that might be, you know, it's just, it becomes a fact of life. And so, yeah, it's just, as you said, sometimes it's there when it's really not, in many cases, not supposed to be there. Um, you know, we, it, yeah, we expect it. I think as we age, I mean, we think it's kind of part of the right. normal trajectory of life and maybe, it, maybe it is in some way, but you know, we, we also are a culturally conditioned to just say, well, pop a, pop a pill, let's mask it or minimize it. Mm-hmm. And we probably quit moving. And so inevitably chronic pain sufferers, become pretty complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, they oftentimes have gained weight because mm-hmm. they're not moving like they once right, did. Right, they're sedentary. Mm-hmm. They're sedentary. They're, their sleep is probably disrupted, mm-hmm. chronically disrupted, which develops a whole other coast of health mm-hmm. problems or comorbidities or complications, including weight gain and cognitive mm-hmm. decline. You know, if they're popping even the over-the-counter medicines like the Tylenols and the Advils and these types of things, there's pretty clear science that shows those disrupt kidney health and right. gut biome health. And so mm-hmm. that's going to exacerbate the problem. And then the more aggressive drugs, whether the opioids or the non, you know, the neuroleptics or anticonvulsant drugs, they're changing biochemistry in the body. So side effects will inevitably happen. Addiction will happen, you know, depression, withdrawal. I mean, it, it, so after years or decades, people really become a shell of who they once were. And so our care process begins first by saying, 
why is it important for you to get out of pain now? What is your motivation? Who right. needs you to show up at a different level? What does pain cost you? Getting them thinking differently about that. And then as we take that basis of them saying, this is why it's important to me, and then educating them about modern pain science, that it's not probably a tissue problem, it's probably a brain problem, and we can likely help you with this process, that combination of factors is like, it reignites a little spark of hope in people's mind. And then in our model, we give them the first treatment for free so that they can start to experience some relief with no cost. It's like that is a, a turning point for many people. And then hope begins to return. Relief begins to happen. They become start, start sleeping better and moving better. They're able to become less complicated because their body can start to function like it's really supposed to function. Anyway, right. it's, I, I could geek out on it a long time, but it, it is life-changing for, for our clients. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, one of the things you didn't mention is depression. I mean, you know, oh, that, that yeah. is something that, that comes in and you, and, and you will, excuse me, alluded to the fact that our brains are so powerful. And, you know, before the, the program, I was sharing with you that one of the, the things that I have had, and, and I have chronic pain, um, it's very low level, just kind of one of those annoying type of things. Now, it can yeah. spike really pretty easy. You know, it doesn't take too much, and all of a sudden, I'm at an eight. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and I know some of the things that I need to do to, to keep from having that, you know, all sorts of things. Sometimes it's, it's just going to happen, and that's just based on, on, you know, all of my medical history. But one of the, the people that I have seen um, to deal with some of this is a hypnotherapist. Yep. And, you know, and, and my husband is one of those that, no, 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 no. You, no you, now, he doesn't really go to a doctor either, but, you know, he really doesn't do any of the, the alternative things. Right. And, you know, and, and this, the, the person that I see is also a friend. And so I, I very much trust her. And, you know, I remember her saying, you know, your, your brain can basically control everything. And it, well, it does control everything. And, you know, some of the things that I have talked about with her, I will tell her, you know, things like, um, I don't remember names, never remember somebody's name. You know, I'm just, I'm bad at that. And, you know, and, and so I wanted to have hypnotherapy to get over that, mm -hmm. which kind of, you know, laughs at me, which of course, you know, can be done. But she said, I have told myself so many times that I am bad with names, that I am bad with mm -hmm. names. Yeah. And so if I start having the opposite thought process, that's going to be what really starts helping make that change. And, and the same thing happens with pain. You know, it's, it's, you know, what do you need to do in your mind to, to get out of being in pain? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's the adage that probably most of your listeners have heard, which is we don't see the world as the world is. We see the world as we are. We're a product of our genetics and our right. upbringing, our environment and our education. And so we filter that perception through that lens of experience. Pain is very much the same way. And I think one of the unfortunate realities of how we've approached pain from, a, from an industry standpoint is that because there's a been a lag in understanding, um, we look to the tissue as being the culprit and the problem. And so somebody has chronic back pain, they go in, they get an MRI, they're going to see tissue abnormality, like a herniated disc or arthritis, because most of us have that. Mm -hmm. We may not know it because we don't feel pain, right. you know, but we feel, oh, that's the reason. And so that becomes now the limiter Let's of expectation. Fix <laughs> Let's fix that. And when that doesn't fix it and failed back, failed back surgery syndrome is a very prominent pain mm -hmm. diagnosis because someone's had their back fixed, but the pain is lingering because it's really a neurogenic problem, not a tissue problem. Then we're just actually adding to that, that um, expectation that I have a back problem that's never going to get better, right? And so that, that, that becomes the ceiling of limitation. In the book, I, I wrote an analogy in the book that um, we think of pain very cause and effect. Pain, bad tissue, something's wrong. But when pain is chronic, it's not really 
a direct cause and effect relationship like that. So a more appropriate analogy is actually credit card debt. Mm -hmm. So if I get a credit card with a $3,000 limit and I start using that credit card for routine things like buying gas and groceries and school supplies for my kids and maybe a weekend away with my wife, you know, routine things, as long as I pay the bank, at least the minimum payment, I can keep using that card. Ideally, I pay it off, right? But if I allow debt to aggregate on there, so let's say I have a $3,000 limit, but I have $1,500 of debt that's on there aggregated. Mm -hmm. Now, one event, like my car breaks down and I got to buy a new transmission, which cost me $1,700 yeah. and uh -oh. I only have $1,500 available. Metaphorically, this is painful because I got a big $1,700 bill. Now, if I put it on my credit card, I'm at or over my limit. So there's going to be more pain associated with that because you know, there's over limit fees. And if I was relying upon that credit card to put gas in my car so I could get to work or to buy groceries to pay, you know, feed my family because I don't get paid for another two weeks, then the circumstance around that has made that event even more catastrophic, even more painful. And in, even in a situation, we think, well, it's because of that dang car repair bill that I'm now in this situation. Well, that's true. That car repair bill was right. like the tipping point. But, but you, you also had 1500 leading up to it. Exactly, right. And so that, that's really what happens in pain because the nervous system's primary job above all else is survival. Mm -hmm. So it records, kind of like charges to an account, all of these events that it perceives as a potential threat to its ability to keep us alive. So that's injury and stress and environment and emotion and, you know, on and on and on. And uh, if we're healthy and we're sleeping and we're eating and we're moving and we're keeping our bodies as, you know, close to as optimal health as possible, then the, we have the better ability to kind of flush those, char those threat charges away, if you will, off of our nervous system account. But most of us are maintaining an active balance because we aren't as healthy as we should be. And now one simple injury puts us into that catastrophic you know, kind of nervous system phase where we're at or over our limit. And now the nervous system is like on high alert. It's kind of like at that limit. And so it's like everything starts to be perceived as a potential threat mm -hmm. and it reinforces this expectation of pain. So to unbundle that is it maybe it can be a complicated process, but if you just pop a pill to mask it, it's kind of like drinking a six pack of beer to deal with your credit card debt. You feel better about it in the moment, but right. you haven't made the problem any better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Right. You know, and, and it is complicated because, you know, clearly there are things like for rheumatoid arthritis. That's just painful. That's painful all the time. But, you know, you can still alleviate some of that pain, um, you know, and, and, and you know, and, and so there's an acute pain is, you know, that you put your hand on the, the stove and you go, ouch, you know, and then it gets better. Um, it gets better. You know, yep. and, and, um, but yeah, it's, it is, it's such a weird thing because, you know, yeah, like I said, I've I've dealt with this, and and it's it's interesting because one of the first things that everybody always wants to do is give you a pill. We're gonna give you a pill. We're gonna fix it. We're gonna give you the pill, and then of course the problem is the pill of whatever it is gives you additional problems. Right. Um, you know, and and it's funny. I have I have big blood work done every twenty one days, um, and every once in a while I get somebody who hasn't seen my blood work and they go, hmm your liver function is a little off. And I look at them and I say, yeah, I used to take too much Tylenol. Mm -hmm. And I really did. You know, that was what they figured out was I had just taken too much Tylenol and I took Tylenol to be able to sleep. You know, it would relax me and I would sleep. So I took Tylenol every night or virtually every night. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it never occurred to me, hello, ding-a-ling, you know, you're, you could potentially be damaging part of you. And, you know, there's, there's certainly... Um, warnings that are out there, you know, they tell you don't, you know, don't do all of those things, but, you know, we take it anyway. And, you know, and, and, but yeah, so, you know, to get over that, they're like, well, we're going to give you a different pill. 
Um, you know, and, 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 you know, and, and there are certainly, you know, then you've got the, the Eastern medicines where they're going to say, okay, you know, you've got chiropractic, acupuncture, Reiki, you know, all of those various things. And of course, the problem with those is they don't work fast. I want to be better now. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and that I think is probably a big problem, especially in, you know, Western civilizations is we do, we want to be better now, you know, right. and, and we don't recognize the fact that better now can lead to long-term problems. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. And I'm a big fan of, of Eastern medicines and alternative care. I grew up with an uncle who is a chiropractor. My dad is a vice president at the, uh, Oregon College of Oriental Medicine, which is one of the oldest uh, Eastern medicine um, schools in the country. And, you know, I have great appreciation for those things. Um, The challenge from an industry standpoint is scalability because it's really clinician dependent. And so in our business model, we have a piece of technology and evolving technology that we're investing in the evolution of that allows us to create replication and scale and to build business systems around, you know, technology versus around people, even though there's a people component to it Mm -hmm. too they become kind of plug and play because it's really a systems driven business that allows us to scale and then to reach more people more effectively. Right. But you're right too. I mean, the, the sense of like immediacy and unbundling things that can be pretty complicated can't, it isn't typically an overnight process. Mm-hmm. And so you have to set the right expectations and you have to coach and you have to guide and you have to get people focused on why is it that they want to approach their pain either literally or metaphorically, whatever it is they're dealing with from a different standpoint. And I think it's true with anything. I mean, if you want somebody to go through a personal development process or they want to, it has to be driven by them and their motivation to say, I want to become a better person or I want to become a more healthy person or I want to lose weight or I want to manage my pain differently. It's driven by an endogenous or internal kind of motivation versus an external force saying you have to do it this way. You know, right. Otherwise, why wouldn't we want the path of least resistance? You know? Yeah. I mean, you know, if I going to invest, make yeah. it all better, sure. Sure, yeah. And, and, and in many cases that works. I mean, that's why you, you have a headache, you get rid of the headache. Um, but the problem is you're not looking at the underlying cause for the headache. Um, you know, and, yeah, and, and once or twice is fine, but if you're doing it every day and it becomes, right. you know, a chronic condition, inevitably mm-hmm. you're going to be creating longer term problems, like you know, short term games, long term problems, I think. Right. Yeah. You know, and one of the things that you talk about in your book is the fact that, you know, and, and, and we've been talking about it here is, you know, that the medical field doesn't really deal with pain well, you know, and, and then you add in the fact that they might be, you know, whoever the, the practitioner is, they're part of a big practice, which they are told you have to see 25 people in a day. You know, we don't have the, the, the days anymore where you sat down with your doctor Right. And they chatted with you. And, you know, I grew up in a very, very small town in the mountains of Colorado. One doctor for the whole county. He delivered a lot of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? um, my mother worked for him. So, you know, knew him very well. But he knew everybody, you know, and, and so he knew, okay, well, you know, Bob has had this issue. And now we have Sue that's got the, you know, and, and so he could put those pieces together because he had the time to be able to do it. And now they can't do that. Um, you know, and, and, and I think that is part of the reason why it's here, take a pill, go away here, take a pill, go away. Um, you know, and, and, and the take a pill is the first response. Um, I shared with you before the program that, you know, after many of my, my multiple surgeries, you know, or actually before, because, you know, you get all the, the prepper stuff, they would say here. And I'm like, well, here, this is for your pain medicine. Nah, I don't want to, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to need that. Yes, you will. And, and it was the big stuff, you know, this is, you know, these, this was not, you know, Hey, Tylenol three or, you know, whatever that would be. This was, you know, major pain pills. Now, granted I was having major surgery, but it was just 
here you have this, here you have this. And, you know, and, and never any really question of, do I really need that? Um, you know, or could I do something different? You know, ice packs, hot packs, you know, whatever. It was just here, take this, take mm-hmm. this pill. Um, and, you know, even when I was in the hospital, they would say, now, you know, it's, it's time for your pain medicine. And I want pain medicine, but it's time for your pain medicine. The doctor ordered it. And I'm like, well, I don't care. You know, and, and, and so I'd end up with this whole little row of things on my, because I wouldn't take it. And I would just leave them sitting merrily there and the doctor would come in and he'd just go. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. There's, there's definitely, um, you know, a culture amongst us as consumers and amongst the medical profession to at least the United States to overprescribe on the medications. And in some cases um, it's out of, you know, obviously I think in most cases I would like to think that it's out of a genuine desire to help that client have a a comfortable experience, right? Mm -hmm. They want them to get better. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's also out of, frankly, out of naivete because they, they many times don't understand the modern pain science and really what they're doing to the person's body. And then um, in some cases, as, as, you know, more and more states are suing these opioid manufacturers. It's pretty clear how deceptive these marketing campaigns really right. were. And in some cases, complicit, some doctors were at overprescribing for monetary gain or for whatever reason they might have been doing it. And so there's a lot of reasons why, you know, why that's unfolded the way it has. There's an interesting article in the New York Times about a year and a half ago talking about the difference, though, culturally between somebody that has surgery in Europe versus here in the United States. And right. very little medications prescribed post-surgery. It's like, you know, your body just went through a traumatic event and you're going to feel uncomfortable, but that's your body telling you, heal, take right. it easy and use, you know, drink bone broth, do, you know, do all these things to kind of like nurture yourself and let your body go through the, ne- the normal healing process versus just masking to try to get right back to activity as quick as possible, which may not really serve you. Right. Well, in fact, in many cases, it makes it worse because we didn't feel that pain. And so then we complicated the issue or we hurt ourselves in a different way. Right. Um, you know, it's, I, I was thinking about, you know, say a football player who gets hurt I'm a big college football fan. Um, and, and they get the shot and they go back out and they play. And then they really hurt themselves. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and pain, again, is the body's way of saying, hello, stop. Um, you know, and, and slow down, wait, pause. You know, the, the, the sprained ankle is telling you, get off your feet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And, you know, and, and then when you just take pain and mask it, you really do damage things further down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Or, you know, even if you're not actively playing a sport like that, your body is going to try to compensate to protect that area that that has been injured or that is vulnerable or was historically vulnerable. And that compensation can create adaptations that inevitably cause more pain down the road. Uh, Your your left knee causes your right hip to hurt. Yeah, right. You know, and and it's funny because, you know, there are times where obviously, you know, stuff has to happen, um, you know, and, and, and we're not saying, you know, no, no, not do that. And, and I remember years ago, um, we had a dog club and we had a, um, a holistic vet come to our dog club. And, you know, and, and, you know, there were several of us, our little eyebrows went up and we're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And, um, and, and I distinctly, I mean, this really was probably 25 years ago. I, I still remember him saying, you know, if a dog is hit by a car, we have to do surgery. But if it has something else that we can treat with, with you know, uh, you know, acupuncture, then we do that. He said, you know, and, and his point was, we need to combine all these things, you know, and, and find what works best for whatever that situation is and treat yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think uh, maybe underlying that comment is the fact that as an as a healthcare industry, 
we've specialized, we've compartmentalized all these different specialties. And so they get very myopic, like, mm-hmm. well, this is a knee problem. So I'm going to, you know, look at it from just right. the standpoint versus kind of looking at mm-hmm. more holistically about, and the body is a holistic machine. It's, you know, it's like, you can't affect one part of that body. And if you don't understand that, think about your, your business. I mean, you know, business is a, is a system too. And you can't, you know, limit what you're spending in marketing to save money and not probably reduce the amount of sales, which is then going to reduce your revenue, which is going to make it harder to say, I mean, it, it all works together, you know? And so I think, I think we've been in some ways misserved as a population by having a healthcare approach that's so specialized and so compartmentalized. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because what frequently happens is the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. That's right. Um, you know, and, and when you, you sit down and you go through all the prescriptions, it's like, wait a minute, this one doesn't play nice with this one. All right. <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and, or, you know, this, you know, this, this treatment doesn't do well with this and, and things like that. And, and, and so, I mean, the big part is we, have to be better educated. I mean, you know, that is, is probably the first step and we have to question, um, you know, we have to say, well, eh, no, I'm not going to take that pill just because I was told I needed to take that pill. Um, you know, and, and I think that, you know, that is one of the things that I tell people a lot when they ask me about, you know, what I've been through is I say, you know, we have to take control of our own care. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and I, and that really is the biggest part of it. You know, it's, it's not, you know, you, you have to have this pill, you have to do this, you have to do that because they went to school for 900 years. <laughs> no, you know, and, and, and it could even be, you know, uh, you know, um, maybe chiropractor isn't the right one for this. I mean, you know, all those various things, we have to think about it ourselves and make the best choices. You're absolutely right. And I think, you know, again, our model is predicated on that exact philosophy. When we start the process by saying, we'll treat you for free, we'll give you a free introductory treatment. Mm -hmm. But we just ask you to first identify, why is it a a priority for you to get out of pain? What does pain cost you? What is your definition of success? We get them thinking differently about that. And then they become empowered. And then we educate them. And it's like, we want them to be in the driver's seat of how they proceed and, um, you know, pursuing our care if they do or not, and investing in the thing that's going to give them what Mm -hmm. they feel is the best chance of, of, uh, of, of positive outcomes. And I think that's so important because, you know, pain in particular minimizes people's ability to function, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a loss of control. Right. And when somebody can start to reclaim that, that is actually an important psychological flag in the ground, line drawn in the sand, whatever metaphor you want to use to say, to tell that person psychologically to themselves, I'm no more. I'm moving right. forward back to reclamation of the life that I want to have for myself mm-hmm. and, you know, not just taking everybody's advice or doing it because it's what we've done in the past. Like allowing somebody to be in charge of that is an important part of care for anything, pain or, or, or Mm -hmm. anything. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, good golly, Brendan, we are already almost at the top of the hour. We've only got about five minutes left. Okay. Now you clearly just have one physical location. You know, a lot of times when I'm talking with my guests, you know, they can, um, they can do their training over the internet and they can use Skype and all of these various things. But if, if someone wants to uh, take advantage of your services, they do have to go to Oregon um, at some point. Hopefully that will change. I know that is, is obviously one of the goals. But you know, tell us just a little bit more about your facility. Yeah, so we have a center in the suburbs of Portland, Oregon, and we do have people that fly to us from across the country, uh, that drive to us many hours from the region, or that fly even from out of the country in some cases, um, and and it's because they're ready to reclaim their life. And so, you know, what we've modeled is a, is a way to come in and try it for free. Um, the whole center is built around this technology and this approach of managing pain mm-hmm. non-invasively by retraining the brain um, with the technology kind of being the key piece, but some other things that we do. 
and it's free to come in and try it. If you happen to be in the region, if you're interested, you want more information, you can go to our website, learn about it, reach out to us. We're happy to have a conversation. And in most cases, it's safe. In most cases, it's highly, highly effective at reducing pain and not just masking it, but getting to the root of the problem, which is the brain and restoring the brain back to a more normal perception of pain. So we get relief that is significant, but then also lasting without drugs, without needles, without surgery, right. without side right. effects. And working hard to get some more centers open. Um, we hope to have one in, in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, one in Austin, Texas, both by the end of the year, and then accelerated growth thereafter. We're also investing, if you're interested in the crowdfunding act, um, activities, uh, towards an at-home version, which will be like Peloton for pain. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. Well, how do people find you and connect with you online? Uh, I mean, if they're interested in me personally, I'm not that interesting, but you can find me on <laughs> Facebook or LinkedIn, uh, Brendan Lumberg. Uh, but if you're interested in the business, if you're in chronic pain or you know somebody who is, mm-hmm. uh, go to radiantpainrelief.com. Again, radiantpainrelief.com. And from there, you can navigate. I'm interested in therapy. I'm interested in your, a copy of your book. I'm interested in you know, understanding the crowdfunding or getting involved uh, you know, as a healthcare professional. How do I get involved? Wh- whatever that it is they might uh, be interested in, we can help them through the website. Great. You know, and, and I love that this is fact and science based. You know, there are a lot of people that, oh, it's kumbaya. No, <laughs> you know, like you said, Mayo and John Hopkins have done studies with this technology. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, are they thousands and thousands of people? No, but, you know, it's, it's at some point, you know, there, there will be big numbers. Um, you know, and, and so it is something that is definitely finally maybe catching the attention of people because yeah there are so many people that that have chronic pain and they want to get rid of it you know they want to go back to living the life that they really want to live sure. absolutely yeah yeah and again honored to be on the, the podcast and to share a message and if anyone out there listening is suffering with chronic pain or interested in being involved with us in any way we hope that you do reach out and um you know help help you have a better quality of life or someone you care about or have you help us reach more people so that we can help uh change society and change the way chronic pain is understood and treated. Great. Well, is there, you know, are there any other final thoughts that you want people to to have? Uh, It's this. I mean, I think from an entrepreneur standpoint um, and from, you know, it's a privilege, I think, to be part of something that can, you know, reach people at a very intimate level in their life and help them have a better quality of life and, you know, to be able to Think about an idea of going out to more people and hopefully shifting society is a big thing. So please do reach out if we can help you or if you want to help us. Great. I love it. You know, and, and really can't add anything more to that. So I am Deb Creer. I've been having a fascinating discussion with Brendan Lundberg. And until next time, everyone have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us next time for more real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. You've been listening to C-Suite Radio. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.